And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Plan to attend the Virtual Tree Canopy Conference. Trees are more important than ever. This virtual conference focuses on preserving trees in our communities and examines important topics, including tree equity, making the benefits of trees available to everyone. You will learn which tree species will do best as the climate warms and the importance of planting diverse species. You will see how warmer temperatures change the geographic ranges of insect pests and what that means for preserving trees. Speakers include Paul Meyer, retired executive director of the Morris Arboretum, Jad Daly, president of the American Forests, and Mike Rupp, professor of entomology at the University of Maryland. Each session carries one CEU for International Society of Arboriculture Certified Arborists. To register, visit www.marsarb.org backslash classes or call 215-247 5777, extension 125. Sponsored by the Morris Arboretum of the University of Pennsylvania and the Haverford College Arboretum. Jennifer Walker is the head gardener at the Barnes Arboretum at St. Joseph's University. She enjoys the challenge of managing and growing the tree canopy and other flora of this historic arboretum, as well as being engaged in the life of the university through student engagement and collaboration with faculty and staff. Jennifer's other professional areas of expertise include environmental management and civic engagement with specific attention to the effects and presence of structural inequality, community conflict, and stakeholder development. Jennifer has authored numerous publications, including a manual for the EPA on vacant lot regreening in the Rust Belt and completed uh, landscape designs and management plans in communities ranging from Etim Oda in Ghana to a coastal marine lab in rural Georgia. Jennifer holds a Bachelor of Science in Landscape Architecture from North Carolina State University and a Master's in Landscape Architecture from the University of Georgia. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Jennifer. We're delighted that you could come to talk with us today and to our audience. We're just really thrilled. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, and one of the things after meeting you at the Arboretum, I wanted to know about how you're, you actually started managing the collection of trees there when you first came there and what were some of the challenges that, uh, that you faced upon your arrival at the barns? Well, you know, one of the 
one of the biggest challenges I think was also a blessing, which is that so many people going back generations have really intense emotional connections to this landscape and particular trees, which is, I think, a rare find. Usually you're trying to get people interested in, in trees and specimens, but I found that a lot of people had a lot of concerns and a lot of investment and involvement, which was a, a blessing to engage folks in that way because we do do horticulture education and outreach. And um, so we, it, you know, we really had to, to double down on the education and communication piece. And then the other, I think the biggest challenge is just the changing climate. It's our, our shared inheritance of that. It's both from the perspective of kind of warmer, wetter weather to extremes. I found a lot of soils that were scoured and eroded and compacted, mm -hmm. which can happen fairly quickly um, with, with uh, re repetitive major storm events. And then on top of that, the diseases and, uh, that, that go along with warmer weather, weather and not having a cold winter and things like that. And then also just the um, one another blessing of this place is just the enormous diversity and quantity of trees that are here, especially veteran trees. There's a lot of older aging specimens really packed in there. <laughs> so that's one of the challenges, just how to manage these old trees that are um, encroaching on trip lines and, and their kind of native habitat wouldn't have so much of the, the competition that they have from some of the, the other trees and plants, but especially ground covers, which is I think the other major thing I found, which was that there's a lot of what I would call invasive ground covers, a lot of Pachysandra and Ivy and Euonymus that is just a bear to keep off the trees and to protect tree health that needs to be kind of held, held to a minimum. At the same time, it's, it's doing the great service of preventing erosion in some areas. So, You know, you, you, had, um, you had already answered my question about veteran trees, which I know the Arboretum has them, and of course, people do revere them. But how do you see yourself as a the horticulturalist there checking and making sure that there are replacements and you know what's going to happen one or two decades out when some of those veteran trees might be gone you know how is that going to affect you know the reaction of people who come to the arboretum and you know how how do you replace some of those that you know may be one of a kind there well one of the things that i keep going back to um is the legacy of laura barnes and really Captain Lapsley before her too in the 1880s when he started the Arboretum. And that is that we're, we're focused on um, research and teaching and kind of being on the cutting out of edge of horticulture. So one of the things that Laura Barnes did that was just such a gift to this whole region was to early on bring in specimens that were either unknown or thought to be marginal in this area. So we could see how they performed over time. And so, like I mentioned earlier, with the, the changing climate, some of the, the plants that have been here for a long time, some of these older trees, they're failing in part because of that changing climate. Whereas 40, 50 years ago, they were thriving. Now they're really, really struggling. And so that'd be the, the, the first part of my answer is that we, we simply wouldn't replace plants that are not doing well just to maintain a historical record. Like we're not a historic garden, we're a living collection with a historic mandate to maintain a living collection. So that's something that I plan to do is to really, to, to stay on that cutting edge of things that are perhaps maybe marginal now, but look to be successful 
five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road so we can really see how they perform in order to perform that service of, of letting other, knows, uh, other people know and other arboretums and municipalities and growers know what works well. And then the other thing I would say too is I mentioned earlier that things are fairly tightly packed, <laughs> which I think is being generous. And there's no, um, so it's, I think it's something that a lot of people like to quantify, like how many trees do you have? And like there's a magic number of trees that this 12 acres could have and that we should kind of maintain that. But what I'm interested in, and then this is something too, I honestly think that Laura Barnes would be interested in had it been the, the way that horticulture was practiced in the 1940s and 50s. And that's to um, really focus on an ecosystem approach. So replacing tree systems more than just replacing specimens. So we will be obviously keeping up a very diverse collection and replacing trees with specimens, maybe ones that will perform better right now, but, but really maintain the focus on ecosystem health, looking at the, the soils and the water and the hydrology, the understory, the ground cover, all of that. So really looking at transitioning it from a you know, tree here, tree here, tree here to an ecosystem. Oh, an ecosystem within the collection, within the grounds. Right, and we have, um, I mean, it's, it's 12 acres, and it's not on a, a steep hillside, so it's pretty much the same <laughs> climate. Yeah. But there are areas, like the, the northeast corner is much drier than the southwest corner, which has the pond and the woodlands. There's, you know, there's all these different places, like some have an aspect that's west facing, some north facing. So there's places in there where we could create kind of sub ecosystem types mm -hmm. and really um, place plants that maybe naturally would grow together. Historically, the, the collections were, you know, all the stewardias in the same area, all the, you know, the, the ferns from Asia in one area, the ferns from Europe in another area. When in reality, there's ferns and Asia and in Europe that some are dry ferns and some are wet ferns. Mm. Um, so to put them in the same area might be good from a, just a taxonomical standpoint. So you could see, you know, one fern next to the other. But as far as an ecosystem, they, they probably need to be a little bit more mixed. And the same with the trees to like really look at what would do well with other, its partners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing Eva and I talk about a lot is we feel like our Delaware Valley uh, climatological zone is experiencing uh, an elevated rate of uh, change in terms of climatological events. Um, you know, the, the heavy storms that, uh, you know, when a, a cold front comes in and blows out a week's worth of heavy, humid air. And then uh, I guess we've been off the hook this summer with extensive drought. It feels like the past uh, maybe three out of five years, August, September have been pretty horrific in terms of dryness. Mm -hmm. uh, you getting a sense of that at the barns uh, in terms of climate and weather? Yeah, so I started here last, end of last July. Um, so it's been a little over a year. Year, I've yeah. Been in the Philadelphia area for about five years. We'll say, I mean, this summer too, back in May, May and early April, I believe, was really dry. A lot of things were growing up. So we, we kind of had both that really intense dry spring, which is unusual, and then 
typically when things are kind of tending towards dormancy right now, it would be a, I think a little bit drier. So it feels kind of flipped. Yeah. And that it is, it's with some of these older trees, you know, it obviously takes years for them to um, really experience that damage from, I would say from root rot and diseases and pests. What I have been seeing though, is just mechanical damage mm. from um, like really, especially in the woodlands, really, really wet soils combined with wind. Yeah. They just don't have the strength. And then you lose right. one, you've lost that buffer. The, um, the trees on the inside of the woodlands haven't grown. What's the name of, um, not a super technical name for the tissues that develop when a tree experiences. Resistive wind. wood. Yes, oh, resistant yeah. wood. Yeah. Yeah. So they haven't um, prepared themselves to face that amount right. of wind. <laughs> so yeah. it becomes kind of one after the other, kind of cumulative. And that's again, I think, why looking at an ecosystem approach is is really beneficial. Does that affect your decisions with uh, species that you might be bringing in? We've had some guests talking about, you know, growing live oak in the Delaware Valley and and looking at other uh, genus that might be ready to make the jump, uh, you know, 50 miles, 100 miles north from Ro Roanoke, Virginia or Richmond or something like that. that yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think too, so part of our, our plant collections policy is to, um, to really, you know, that the plants have to perform on their own. We don't fertilize, we don't treat most things, we don't water after two years. So, you know, we could plant a live oak in a very kind of protected location, um, but then just see how it does. And it's one of the things I'm interested in doing is really uh, keeping up with the records as a teaching tool. Instead of seeing plant failure, if one of these veteran trees needs to come down to not see it as a failure, but to see it as a um, really great teaching tool, like to really forensically look at it with everything that comes down now, whether it's through a storm or something that has to be removed, take tons of picture of the of inside at every point in the tree just to to see like this is what it looked like on the inside so, sure. down a lot. Um, so yeah all that to say is that it's not a failure as much as um just an experiment we're all right. living through this crazy experiment yes we're all living through it we just had uh, john Berryhill on from smith college and uh eva asked uh, about favorite trees and he mentioned sugar maple and hemlock and of course I had this pang of longing because uh, sugar maple and hemlock are you know struggling uh, yeah down uh, in our our region here yeah oh, we don't even have one one fifth of what we had back 35 years ago in hemlock Hemlock uh -huh. used to be a, I mean, up everybody's driveway, you had hemlock to protect your driveway <laughs> from heavy snow drifts and, yeah. and you wow. don't have that anymore. You just, you just don't have, so many properties I used to manage, they're, they're all gone. They, they were yeah. gone within the first 10 years of, of us working there. Yeah. And that, I think we and need that, to do a show on post-traumatic stress for arborists. Because <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I, can never shake in my own brain is spotted lanternfly on Ilanthus mm. and how absolutely <laughs> corrupted and sad they look. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and you're t talking about that when you when you think about um, the uh, the work that was done out in the Midwest after Emerald Ash Borer, um, they were able to prove mental illness increased by thirty percent 
Whoa. Um, after we had the denuding of the emerald or the ash because of the emerald ash borer. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, the before statistics, but then they had the after statistics, which yeah. were so blatantly in your face that they could not believe wow. the effects of trees. So that's when they started doing a lot of research on that. And and it's true, like veteran trees, like John was saying about veteran trees, people come back, they want to see the tree that they grew up, grew were learning around. They right. want to see the tree that they watched fruit each year while they were in school. Um, and I think that that's really, um, it's amazing and sad when it's gone. You know, mm. there's, a, there's a loss of like an old friend. Yeah, I think people, even people that would say they don't have a particular connection to landscape or trees, I don't think they realize it until it's gone. That landscape is gone. I think a lot about like in Oregon or California or Colorado and what's happening now or in Iowa with a wind event a couple months ago. You know, it's people that might not have noticed trees or thought much about them when they're gone. It's really serious. Like really now that you're talking about that, I do, sometimes I do a writing class and I'll, um, one of my writing uh, projects is I'll say, the first thing you need to do is write about the first tree you remember. Mm. And invariably, I have the whole class crying. Yeah. The whole class is crying. It's because my father or my sister, and we've climbed that tree and blah, blah, blah. And it's the tree that gives them memory. So, mm -hmm. you know, you think about that and um, yeah, you're right. They, the plant, plant, plant blindness is, is really um, unconsciousness. Right. Right. Even when Hal mentioned the sugar maple, I have a, a very intense sugar, ma sugar maple memory, <laughs> tree memory. Just hearing that thing just made me tear up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think I think it's great that what you're doing is working and shifting how we look at the trees at the barns. How is this, how is the overall collection being integrated or connected to the now, the new uh, relationship with St. Joseph's University? That's an interesting uh, topic too. So can you give us a little bit of information about that? We're so happy that St. Joseph's is part of, of or has kind of consumed the, the Barnes Arboretum. Right, so I, I definitely don't want to talk about the partnership itself, but I can just that's, tell you no, how, how it's been used in the year that I've been here. Um, like obviously from the horticulture certificate program, which is still ongoing, it's um, I mean, the most obvious use is just that students can see trees, specifically older specimens, how they look, what they look like through the seasons and that, but also the um, plant pathology, classes, propagation, um, learning right. how to, to propagate some of these specimens, and then design. That's one of the things that I'm trying to really open up as well. My um, background in both horticulture and landscape architecture, really in very subtle ways, looking at the views so that these trees get to present their best self. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then uh, just understanding the management strategies and care. Um, the uh, Right now, one of the biology classes from SJU, an undergrad class, is doing terrestrial surveys for the month. And so you'll see a mm. little flagging tape all up over the arboretum with indecipherable numbers on them. But students come out in pairs, masked, and uh, uh, do terrestrial surveys. And these are students that I think are um, upper-class biology students, but I think it's their first ecology class. 
Oh wow! So they're really integrating um, integrating the arboretum as a as a lab, basically. And that that same professor is still doing uh, fruit fly research on invasive fruit flies. Um, the art classes too. That started almost immediately. The art classes, the um, photography, drawing, use this space as a lab. Oh, and one of my favorite. The uh, apologies, I can't remember her name, but there's a really wonderful Latin teacher who brings her Latin classes out, and they have to pick out their favorite plant, um, learn the Latin name, and then write a poem in Latin about that plant. <laughs> oh, that's great. What a great, <laughs> what a great connection. So yeah, the university benefiting yeah, from the Arboretum being there, which is fabulous, and also giving a different um, uh, terrain, if you will, and collection. Mm -hmm. Uh, of of plants that they didn't have on main campus on the main campus, right? I mean, I think and we're really excited. Um, St. Joe's. I mean, it's it's been. Um, I mean, I'm Saint. I've only been here since after the the partnership started, but um, there is just a lot of excitement to um, have this as part of campus, and um, meaning that the university campus will become more like an arboretum you know, more diversity of species, more plants, more trees, that same kind of aesthetic. And I'm really excited about that too, to like, I keep mentioning this, I think the plants are tightly packed here. <laughs> trees breathe. There's plenty of room on the other side of the street. <laughs> right, right. And so in terms of like, like more of an ecosystem thought, like really maintain the diversity and the, the collection here, but then also, then this is getting at that, like, really understanding that there's a change in climate and there's a lot we don't know about how plants will perform, but that we, um, just like this is a really great lab for those classes that I just mentioned at SJU, we also have SJU as a, a campus lab to also grow really cool trees and plants there and see how they do. Did SJU get arboretum status or does it have arboretum status? No, we had a plan, but we haven't um, applied for that yet. Okay, yeah, I haven't been on campus in a long time. I did, um, I do remember uh, the Cardinals residence, which I think St. Joe's has since uh, purchased, which is Cardinal Drive and City Line Avenue. So, and that, we're going back about five or 10 years, but the, the Cardinal used to have his residence there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so St. Joseph's spread out in that direction as well. It's a, it's a pretty interesting, like so many of our guests, you know, our challenges are very urban. And mm -hmm. uh, City Line Avenue, Route 1, cutting right through campus. And at least you got that pedestrian bridge, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, some plans for more of a connection. But it's you know, one of the things that we are is city and suburbs. We have at Philadelphia and Lower Marion. Yeah, right. Um, about 150 acres right now um, altogether. So a lot to work with and a lot of excitement and growth. And yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's there's one thing I want to ask you about because I know that you're heavily into curation and I wanted to find out a little bit more about your landscape management plans and do you have a construction plan document for the preservation of trees and what what's going on there? Well, I have, um, just in general, so I don't have a, um, a specific 
plan list map of, of what I'm going to replace and when. <laughs> I have a lot of, as you know, engage a lot of um, outside help and consultants to, to check my own knowledge and grow and um, think of creative ways to preserve what we have. But in general, a big thing I'm looking at is that water management, which I've mentioned before, but really looking at key areas and how we can protect the existing collection from some of the stronger flows that are coming through. And then that it's ground covers and a lot of ivy, euonymus, bittersweet, and pachysandra right now in ostrich fern. Unfortunately, in the springtime, it's almost completely covered with celandine, which I just have to make peace with because that's never going away. Yeah. Um, I, I'm reading um, Beth Chatto's book, The Damp Garden. And uh -huh. she says that, you know, salandine is just, you know, just takes over, she said, but then she realizes that it does serve a purpose. It covers the ground to prevent erosion and mm -hmm. it does eventually die back so all the other perennials can fill in or the shrubs or whatever it is. So, you know, that, that book goes way back to the, I think, to the 80s. So they were having problems over in England with it. So you know yeah. we weren't having that many problems back then with it but now we are and uh you know yeah. you have to deal with it you know <laughs> yeah i'm dealing with it <laughs> i kind of miss some of the spring ephemerals that that we could have if celandon wasn't so competitive but that um and i think yeah, the other thing two big things i'm looking at um is just the soil health throughout the arboretum beyond just erosion control and water management but just looking at the, the soil life soil diversity and then uh, in very kind of low-tech ways, creating a lot more habitat for reptiles, snakes, turtles, frogs, birds. There's a lot of really, especially this spring, it was really sad that we were yeah. close to the public. Um, this birds had a heyday. <laughs> so many, such, and a, a huge variety of birds here. So really wanting to protect that. And then small mammals, like just the whole, that, that again, that ecosystem approach to really look at how we can build ecosystems to kind of work with nature to maintain areas and maintain the tree canopy. And so with the pond, I've really enjoyed working on that and rehabbing that slowly, but you know, making a connection from the water to the land is the next thing so that turtles and frogs benefit a little bit more. <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether any of the listeners know this, but I actually teach at the Barnes. And um, and so I'm excited because our classes are going to be able to help um, help you with uh, yeah. seeing your vision, <laughs> yeah. helping you develop your vision. So uh, I think that that's really a, a really good learning tool that we're going to have for class. And and yeah. someone with your knowledge and your background of of, um, of landscape architecture as well as horticulture is is fabulous um, for for education and and of course the certificate program having someone like you there to support that education is invaluable. So looking at the trees that are on that campus and and the the value added that students get when they have veteran trees like that, they're irreplaceable. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer, any uh, ground cover solutions you can recommend? Uh, I'm thinking about all the conversations I've had over the years about at least once a week about what can I do about the English ivy? Is it bad for trees? But, you know, you take away English ivy and Pachysandra and Vinca, uh, you know, we're kind of left with uh, a few choices. Yeah, it's pretty slim. But what's working here so far 
I've got a fairly large stand of um, Lily of the Valley, mm. which is working well. Um, doesn't creep around too much and allows things to live around it. And then a, um, a woodland euphorbia. I'm blinking on the mm. scientific name of that. That's working well. So looking at other, that euphorbia and others, really, I mean, if you come out here now, one of the things I'm doing is taking up a lot of the grass, partly to save on the, the cost and damage of mowing and, and tending right. the lawn, but also to increase the soil health under the drip line of trees. Yeah. But because I've just done that, <laughs> the soil isn't super great to plant a lot of things. But ideally, in the near future, we'd be able to really plant those spaces with with shrubs. And so they're that, that shrub layer, small trees and shrubs, so that they become not just trees and ground cover, but uh, more going on. Specifically, I mean, just bird habitat and cover for other animals. One of the things I found that euonymus and ivy is a really, really great um, habitat for voles. For moles? Voles. Oh, voles, um, yeah. Voles, yeah, which are not one of my preferred small mammals to have on the property. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and some like under the lilacs, that's a challenge. That whole situation is a challenge, but perennials, um, like, where light comes through, I've started to use a lot more um, Elysium. What else about mm -hmm. town that's really good? Partly, I mean, it, also deer, also not one of my preferred small mammals. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, it, they don't eat it. There's a few things like that. Calendula is great, but they really like to nibble on the calendula. But those kind of self-seeding annuals where there is enough light to increase the beneficial insects that are visiting, especially close to the, like roses and peonies and lilacs, can take care of some of those issues. Right. Yeah. And under That's trees, helpful. it's so much better to have, have uh, other plants rather than grass. People don't realize that grass takes up so much more water than having a ground cover or having a shrub. Uh, they don't look, they don't think, they don't equate the two um, and, and the amount of water that they take. And so I think that that's uh, really something that people need to look at. And even the combination of perennials and woody uh, shrubs or woody ground covers that mm -hmm. work well, like yellow root or um, mm -hmm. even the new low mound um, aronia now, which just came out from Proven mm -hmm. Winners. Um, yeah. That one there just covers beautifully and yet mm -hmm. you've got a lot of space for water to get through and doesn't consume as much water as lawn, so. Yeah, there's a sweet box. Oh, sweet box, oh, yes, yeah. Sarcococa, yeah. Sarcococa hookeriana, yeah. yeah. Also, too, the mention of grass, one of the things that grasses aren't my, in my, um, my primary knowledge, but I'm slowly learning more about that, but experimenting with some of the native grasses, too, that are not super aggressive, but that would do, especially like under the, the what I'm calling the meadow area, I'm rebranding it the meadow. <laughs> it's uh, under the collection of crab apples and apples and pears. Right. It's a little bit of a forgotten area. I've let it grow up now into a little bit of a high grass meadow with what's there, but I'd like to convert that area into more of um, native wildflowers and then also grasses that aren't going to use a whole lot of water and wouldn't outcompete some of the annuals and perennials in that mix. But I think that's kind of an underutilized ground cover under trees, especially in city areas too. There's some grasses that aren't going to, they're not long grasses, but they would, they're really, really durable to the salt and um, uh, dog 
interactions. Red red fescue is, is a good one. Slow grower and rarely needs to be mowed. Yeah. Before we have to go, because we're getting short on time here, believe it or not, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Hal and I have a favorite question we like to ask. I think you might have alluded to it already. Do you have a favorite tree? Oh, I knew this was coming and I haven't, I made a list so I could just like put my finger on one. I'm going to tell you one of them. The Yulon, here at the barns, I think one of my, one of my five top favorites is the Yulon Magnolia, the Magnolia Denudata. Mm. Yes, is, I love that. And it's really, it was spectacular this spring in part because we didn't have a late cold snap or a lot of rain. So it's flowers persisted but its structure and even its texture right now it's such an unusual mm. beautiful form that's my favorite of the hour that's a <laughs> well, great i've answer. never heard that one but it's like you know somebody said to me you never ask you know which is your favorite child no you know but i always say <laughs> that it's the one i'm standing right in front of <laughs> right because <laughs> the others can't hear me <laughs> yeah that's great <laughs> yeah. well jennifer it's been really a wonderful um time talking with you and you just a really great um discussion and we hope we can have you back sometime soon um great. We wish you the best at the at the barns yes. so yeah i'll hope to see you both out here soon yeah yeah i have to get over it it's been uh, way too long jennifer so i will uh, look forward to meeting you in person oh, that'd be great thanks Al. thanks bye guys bye bye <laughs>